and we'll, we'll sit out uh, in the shade and enjoy uh, the, the weather, which will be cooling down at that point uh, in the day, and uh, some sweet ice cream. And uh, it is a, also a, a sweetness to my own soul uh, to get to continue our series on the church today. Uh, this is uh, part five uh, in our series on uh, the church. We began by looking at the, where the church fits into God's uh, larger plan in history. And then we looked at uh, the purpose of the priority of the church is worship. Now, I want you guys to talk back to me. This is kind of a, an impromptu pop quiz. So the priority of the church was worship. Who was the head of the church? Christ. Uh, and uh, last week we looked at the foundation of the church, which was, someone has it, Scripture, right? And this morning what we're going to look at is the message of the church, which is the gospel. And, and we'll unpack uh, what that means, but I want to begin by asking you a, a question of what is it that makes someone a Christian? It's a very important question to, to ponder, uh, and our answer to that question is going to be very influential as we look at uh, the church and what the church is to be. It was about the year A.D. 300 uh, that the, the small, tiny nation of Armenia became the first nation to embrace Christianity as its established national religion. About the year A.D. 300. And then A.D. 312... Uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. He came to faith, and then, uh, as uh, the Roman Emperor usually did, he would then use his power and influence uh, to, to advance the cause of his religion. Now, every Roman Emperor prior to Constantine had been a pagan. He had worshipped uh, the, the pagan Roman gods, but now Constantine changed things a little bit and began to advance the cause of Christianity, and it was a little, a little bit later in the fourth century that Theodosius I, the Roman emperor, uh, he began to outlaw the worship of the pagan gods. He says, "Hey, you can't sacrifice to them anymore." And as those things were outlawed, uh, Christianity gradually became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And uh, for many, that was a cause of rejoicing because it. Uh, limited and, and kind of put an end to religious persecution in the Roman Empire, but it also created some problems because now if the, if the entire Roman Empire was a Christian nation, how do you know who a Christian is? What makes someone a Christian? Is it merely just being a citizen in the Roman Empire? Is that what made someone a Christian now? And if not, how do you know who the real Christians are? Again, that wasn't a, pr a problem when the church was being persecuted. When it was very costly to follow Jesus, uh, you knew who the real Christians were because they were the ones who were willing to die for their faith. So when you have a, a nationalized religion, it began to, to have some issues with it as well. And th that problem persisted throughout European history as now uh, nations began to adopt Christianity as their official religion. And that problem persists into our own nation in our own time as well because uh, 
at the, the founding fathers of our nation, they were not all Christians, so we'll, we'll make that clear. We won't get into that debate. Uh, many of them were, were deists and, and other things, but they used religious language uh, to the effect that many view the United States as a Christian nation, especially uh, from the outside world. They look at everything that's happening uh, in America and they say, wow, that's what Christianity looks like? That's, that's Islam is pretty much their number one critique of us. Of that's what Christians look like, and, and that's where we, we have to hopefully clarify. As I know, that's not what Christians look like. Everything that's happening in our nation is not Christianity. And so that that question, what makes someone a Christian, is still of the utmost importance. And, and how should we answer that question? And some people answer that question of someone a Christian because of the nation that they were born in. Right? And, I, and I've, I've had that response as I've talked to people of, oh, I am, I am a Christian. Oh, really? So tell me about that. How did that happen? Well, I was, I'm born in America. I'm like, well, that, that's not what makes you a Christian. I've also had the response that uh, teens were, were Christians because they, they grew up in a Christian home. Now that their parents were Christian, so that kind of makes them a Christian as well. So is that what makes someone a Christian? Or does a, a person become a Christian later on in life by making a decision? And if so, what is that decision? And does the decision need to be preceded by anything or followed by anything? And if we were to, to seek the answer in Scripture, Scripture makes it clear that a person is not a Christian because of where they were born or who their parents are. But what makes someone a Christian is by being born again, by God working in their heart so that they hear and receive the truth of the gospel. And all those who believe the gospel in faith are Christians. But then you may say, but Pastor Thomas, that just raises another question. What is the gospel? I'm glad you asked that after I prompted it uh, in your mind. Uh, and, and that's what I want to talk about this morning, uh, of what is the gospel. And it is the central message of the church. This is what the church is called to believe in and to proclaim. And so as we look at what is the gospel this morning, I'm going to kind of form my thoughts around three headings. Uh, number one, uh, the message of the true gospel. Secondly, the, uh, the danger of false gospels. And then thirdly, the role of the gospel in the life of the church. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to look at those uh, in order. So first and foremost, what is the message of the true gospel? And as many of you probably know, the word gospel comes from the, the Greek word that means simply good news. Uh, and it has come to mean God's good news to human beings. And so what is that message of God's good news to humanity? Well, if it, there's an emphasis on the, the good news, but before we get to good news, we have to understand the bad news. If, if we were going to explain what the gospel message is, there's a variety of ways of explaining the gospel, and there's numerous passages we can turn to uh, in Scripture, and we're going to be bouncing around uh, in a couple of minutes, but, but here are the four components to, to a gospel presentation, to an understanding uh, that, that you're going to have to touch on when you speak of the gospel. First, you're going to speak about who God is. And God is holy. He is our creator, and we are accountable to him. 
He created us and he owns us. And he's created us to be like him. And one day, each and every one of us will have to stand before God and give an account. Hebrews 9, 27 says, And just as it, as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. So we're all going to have to stand before a God who is holy and who is our judge. And the second component to the gospel message is that you and everyone else, we, all of humanity, are sinful and alienated from God. We have rebelled against what he has commanded us to do and to be in his word. We have gone our own way. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, just before what we read today for our scripture reading, says this, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So, so the bad news could be summarized in this way. We are all sinners and, and will be judged by a holy God for our rebellion and sin against him. And that's what we have to understand first and foremost. God is holy, man is sinful, and then God intervened. And this is where the good news comes in. But we have to, to see and understand the bad news and establish that first. And how God intervened was that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live, to die, to rise again for sinners. Now, Jesus is the God-man who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, who, who rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven after that. And Christ died for the unrighteous. Even though he was perfect and, un and without sin, he died so that he would bring us to God. That, that's the message of the good news. And then there's a call for us to respond. We have who God is, who we are as sinful humanity, what Christ has done and who he is. And then what are, we, what are you going to say about that? And we are called to, to turn from our sin and trust in Christ. Repent and believe. And trusting in Christ and Christ alone leads to our salvation. Not relying upon anything that we have done in the past or will do in the future. It's not dependent upon our own works. It's based strictly upon who God is and what he has already accomplished. Romans chapter 10 uh, verse 9 put the emphasis uh, in this way. If you guys all want to turn with me there. And we'll be, we'll be bouncing around. But if you look with me at Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 9, Paul explains that the, what we are called to, to do in response to the gospel in this way. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. But there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
That is the, the message of the gospel, that we are called to look to Jesus in faith. And then when we do that, when we, when we look to Christ rather than ourselves for our salvation, some, some marvelous and miraculous things happen. One of them is that we are united with Christ. That he is now in you and you are in him. Colossians 3 puts it this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, you participated in his death and his resurrection, then we are to seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This idea that, that you are united with Christ means that what he did he counts for you, and what you have done was placed upon him. There's a, uh, we are united with Christ is one of those marvelous and miraculous things. And the second marvelous and miraculous thing that happens when we believe the gospel is that a great exchange takes place. The, the perfect life that Jesus lived, never once sinning or breaking God's law, but he lived a perfect life. That perfect life is attributed to us. That, that sinless perfection, so that when God looks upon us, he doesn't see all of our filth, all of our sin, all of our wickedness. He sees his perfect son. All of Christ's righteousness is attributed to us, and then all of our sin is attributed to Christ. And all of our sin has been paid for on the cross. Elsewhere in Colossians, Paul says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All of our sins have been paid for because when Jesus was on the cross, what else was on the cross with him? All of our sin. So all of our sin has been paid for by what Christ endured on the cross as he endured the wrath of God on our behalf. We have been united with Christ. A great exchange has taken place and then the third marvelous and miraculous thing that happens is we are moved from one kingdom to another. Our, our citizenship is transferred. We are no longer citizens of this world. We have been moved and made citizens of the kingdom of God. Colossians 1 verse 13 says this, He, speaking of God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So now, all of our sin is gone. We have the righteousness of Christ upon us. Our citizenship is transferred. God looks at us as holy and blameless. And all of this is the free message of the gospel. I love what Isaiah 55 says, that you who are without money come, buy, and eat. Well, how do you buy something if you have no money? What does it tell you about the price of whatever you're buying? It's free. 
Uh, that, that is the message of the gospel. It is freely proclaimed. It is freely given. Salvation is a grace gift. It is the given by God for nothing. It costs you nothing. But I, but I want to make a distinction here. That, that this message is given freely and, and salvation costs you nothing, but that doesn't mean it is cheap. There's a difference between cheap and free, right? When you perceive something to be cheap, how do you treat it? Right? Now, before my wife and I went on this long road trip to, to Minnesota earlier this summer, we went to the dollar store. You know what's great about the dollar store? Is I can get a cartload of stuff for my kids to play with in the car, and I spent like 20 bucks. Uh, and, and so all of those things, because all of that cost me a, a grand total of $20, how do you think we, we treated all of those items? Like they were cheap. <laughs> like it wouldn't uh, be that big of a deal if we lost that 99-cent little soccer ball that we had. It would be tragic for the boys, uh, but I wasn't going to be brokenhearted about it because it, it cost me a, a dollar. Now, when we view something as being cheap, we, we treat it that way. But we can't treat the gospel that way. We, we can't see the gospel as being cheap because it's not cheap. It's free for us, but it cost Jesus his life. And that, that exchange and, and the payment for our sin, the wages of sin is death. Death is the penalty for our sin, and it needed to be paid for. So we can see that the gospel is free, but it is not cheap. And in, in one sense, the gospel costs you nothing, but in another sense, it costs you everything. Say, so what do you mean by that? You just, you just got done saying it was free. Well, listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. As he's teaching the crowds of people who were following him, and they were they're following him because they like the miracles, they like the feedings, uh, when, when Jesus fed 5,000 people. Like, that's great. They're in it for the free lunch and the entertainment. But this is what Jesus says to the people who are coming after him. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. See, part of believing in Christ means that you are going to follow and obey him, that you are going to become one of his disciples. And part of being one of his disciples means that you're going to deny yourself. Now, what does it mean to deny? Talk to me. Right? It's not, not a block on a basketball court. Well, that's a different kind of deny. But uh, when, when you deny yourself, what are you saying to yourself? I said, self? No. Right? You, to whatever your desires are in the moment, you're saying No. You're denying your own desires, your own plans, and rather than doing what you want, you are submitting to and obeying Christ and what he is calling you to, submitting to his lordship over your life. 
So, so that's what I mean in, in one sense, our salvation, you could say it this way, our justification, being declared righteous before God, that cost us nothing, and it cost Jesus everything. But then our sanctification, growing more and more like Jesus over the course of the rest of our lives, that costs us everything. To, to put it more simply, salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a pastor in Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 1940s, he, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he, he said, what we need is a costly grace. A, a grace uh, that understands that salvation is a gift given by God to the sinner by grace, but the sinner is then called to respond with worshipful thanksgiving and obedience to the one who gave the gift. We don't earn the gift, but in response to the gift, we demonstrate worship and thanksgiving. And in contrast with costly grace, there's cheap grace. And Bonhoeffer says this about cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. And for the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. So we have to understand that there is a costly grace to the gospel. It's not a cheap grace. It's free, yes, but it is not cheap. And every one of us, has to decide what we're going to do with the gospel. It's not a decision that your parents can make for you. It's not a decision that your nation makes for you. It's an individual decision. What am I going to do with this bad news, and what am I going to do with the good news? How am I going to respond to what Jesus has done for me? Am I going to have an attitude, well, I'll, I'll just take this, I'll take that forgiveness and then I'll go live my life however I want. That's not what Christ is calling us to. Christ is calling us to a life of discipleship, to a life of obedience. And that obedience begins with repentance and faith and it continues onward from there. And so, so we have to evaluate the gospel. We have to think deeply about the cost of accepting it because Jesus says, count the cost before you jump in and say, yes. You count the cost of accepting the gospel and responding to it in faith, but you also need to count the cost of, of rejecting the gospel. Uh, and, and rejecting is simply not accepting. There's not a, well, I'm on the fence on this. I've talked with a lot of teens. They're like, well, I'm not really sure. Well, then, so right now you're rejecting the gospel. There's no neutral ground. You're either following Christ or you're not. You're submitting to his lordship or you're going your own way. 
And, and this is the message of the true gospel. And we need to hear it frequently. You've, you've probably heard that before. If this was the first time that you're hearing the gospel, I would, I would implore you, I would beg you to, to really think deeply about it. You need to, to understand the cost of both accepting and rejecting this bad news and, more importantly, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done and now what is offered to you by grace through faith. And my prayer is that, that if you're here and you're hearing this for the first time or you, the umpteenth time, but you haven't responded to it, is that you would, that you would respond in faith, that you would see Jesus as worthy, that you would see yourself as God sees you as a sinner and that you would acknowledge, I have nothing to bring, Lord. May you save me. That, that is the, the simple and profound message of the gospel. And, and that is a singular message of the gospel. There is only one true gospel. And it is what I've outlined here for you. And understanding that God is holy, man is sinful, Christ is Savior, and we are called to respond in repentance and faith. And we have to believe that truth if we are going to be a Christian. There are no Christians who reject the gospel, okay? We, we have to keep that in mind. But even though there, there's one singular gospel that has the power to transform lives, there are many, many, many other false gospels out there. Which leads me to the, the second point I want to kind of talk through this morning. And if you, if you would turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 1 and and there we're going to see the danger of false gospels. Galatians chapter 1, the danger of false gospels. Now we read Galatians uh, in June. And so I, I pray that it is fresh upon your mind. And, and these verses that we're going to look at, may it might have, have stood out to you as you were reading. And now, now Paul usually ha has a a way of starting his, his letters to churches. Uh, and uh, usually he, he introduces himself and he, and he greets in the name of uh, the Lord and offers peace and salutations and, and praises the Lord for what is happening uh, in that church or in that group of churches. But he doesn't do that here in Galatians. Paul speeds right past and says, no, we got things that we need to talk about. Right? It's like kids, when, you, uh, when your parents sit you down and they don't have any pleasantries, they just get right to business. You're like, oh, this is really serious. Like, this is what the Apostle Paul is doing to his spiritual children. We have things we got to talk about, and they cannot wait. As we look at Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, we're going to see what prompted the letter and what the letter is going to proclaim and what Paul's heart is. But, but look with me at these verses. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. As we look at these verses, there's kind of three big observations that we can make. So we just look at false gospels. Number one, gospel drift happens. We see that in verse 6. So Paul is writing this letter to churches that he planted, churches that he proclaimed the gospel to just a couple years prior. And since Paul came and preached and set up elders and did all of these things, guess what has happened? They have drifted from the gospel that he proclaimed. So so we need to, to see and understand that we are not immune from gospel drift as individuals or as a church. It is very possible to make small decisions or big decisions that lead us away from that true message of the gospel that we just looked at. Gospel drift does happen. And secondly, in verse 7, gospel distorters do exist. Paul says, hey, there are some among you who are distorting the gospel, who are twisting it. And Paul really says they're they're calling you away to a different gospel, but then he makes a little parenthetical statement, which really isn't another gospel. How many gospels are there? One. Everything else is false. Everything else is false teaching. Everything else If it doesn't save you, it's going to be dangerous for you. And that's what we have to understand. Gospel drift does happen. Gospel distorters do exist. And then in verses 8 and 9, Paul emphatically makes it clear that gospel distortion demands condemnation. Gospel distortion demands condemnation. Again, students and and kiddos, when your parents say the same thing over and over again, and you kind of roll your eyes, and what's your typical response? Okay, I get it, right? Your parents just keep saying the same thing over and over. But what does that mean? What, What do your parents really want you to understand if they're repeating the same thing over and over? This is important. You need to get this. And Paul doesn't mince words here. This is very, very strong language. Because he says, I don't care who else brings a different message. If it's an angel from heaven, you reject it. If it's different from what was initially proclaimed to you. Think about that. There's not going to be anything else that comes to you that you need to receive except what you have already received in the gospel. And anybody who comes and brings a different message, how are you to treat that individual? Make it clear that that is not the gospel. Paul says, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Paul speaks very, very strongly there. And so we have to to see and understand these three truths. Gospel drift does happen. Gospel distorters do exist. And gospel distortion demands condemnation. Which then serves as a huge warning for us, right? That we have to know 
the true gospel backwards and forwards, sideways, so that we can see very clearly and very quickly when something is not the gospel. Again, when we, when we operate under the, those, those four broad categories that I kind of laid out of an understanding of the gospel proclaims a holy God, sinful humanity, Christ as Savior who saved us from sin, that the gospel accomplishes our salvation, and that we are called to look to Christ in repentance and faith. When we understand that, then it's really easy to begin to see all of the false gospels around us. And, and I could have spent the remainder of our time just laying out all of the many false gospels that, that we have coming at us every single day. But you know what? That wouldn't be as helpful because guess what will happen a month from now? There's going to be some other new twists. Someone's going to come with a, a different message. So I want you, first and foremost, to understand the true gospel. And if you know what's true, it's really easy to hold everything else up to what you, what you know is true and determine what's false. But right along with that, I want to, I want to give you some, some general marks of a false gospel. Okay. Uh, and it's really just anything that's different from the true gospel. So false gospels will have a different understanding, a different proclamation of who God is. Right? The, the, the true gospel presents God as holy and as our judge. So something that should, should sound the alarm in your, in your brain, if, you, if you're reading something, if you're hearing something, if you're watching something on YouTube— Beware of any kind of a message of a God that you can control. Okay? Beware of that. Of any, any message that you can, can summon God to do what you want, that's backwards. Does God answer to you or do we answer to God? We answer to God. He, he is sovereign. False gospels also proclaim a different humanity and a different understanding of sin. So, so beware of anything that, any teaching that, that has a different understanding of what sin is. As I was teaching uh, kids in uh, Bible clubs in, in LAUSD public schools, I love the definition that we, that we learned in that training. That sin is anything that you think, say, or do that disobeys God's law. Okay? Now that is what sin is. So anything that, that has a, a different view or a different definition of sin should sound an alarm or a different understanding of who we are as, as human beings. That we are sinners, that we are fallen. That there's, there's views right now that are, that are being proclaimed that that we, in essence, become like God in that we can do every single thing that God does. That's a theology right now. That, that, that what Jesus did, he did in the power of the Spirit. And so once we are indwelt with the Spirit, then we do everything that, that Jesus did. And if we're not doing signs and, and miracles and all of these things, then we're really not saved. And we're really not walking with him. We've got to run from that. And call it out as we run from it. False gospels also proclaim a different Jesus and a different cross. 
Beware of any message where Jesus didn't go to the cross to pay for sin or where Jesus is saving us from something other than sin or accomplishing something on our behalf other than salvation and the forgiveness of our sin, reconciliation with God. And false gospels also proclaim a different means of salvation. Beware of any conditions or works to receive salvation or to receive the blessing of God. Right? You've probably seen those televangelists say, hey, plant, plant a, a seed of faith, $1,000, and the Lord will bless you. Right? There's a condition to the Lord's blessing, and what is it? You giving money to that televangelist. Beware of that. Here's some additional questions to ask of any so-called gospel. Is this message exalting God or exalting humanity? Is this message about me doing something or about what God has done through Jesus? Is this message about receiving physical and earthly blessings or about receiving spiritual and eternal blessings? Is this message calling me to trust in my works or to trust in the finished work of Jesus? Is this message about my sins being forgiven or about my dreams being fulfilled? Is this message redefining sin to be something else? Again, as I mentioned, and, and one example of that, some of you may be familiar with the, the Crystal Cathedral uh, in Garden Grove, California. It was pastored for, for many, many years by Robert Schuller. Uh, and, and Schuller, in one of his books, he defined sin in this way. And again, these are the things that you need to, to begin to listen for and look for. And say, when I hear this, this is dangerous. He defines sin as this. Any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. So sin isn't about an offense against a holy God. What is sin about? Robbing someone else of self-esteem. But that's not what we see in Scripture. Other prominent themes that, that I see around us in our contemporary Christian culture uh, is also talking just about brokenness. And we can talk about brokenness, uh, and, and the gospel is the remedy to brokenness, but Christ didn't die just to heal us of brokenness. And it's like brokenness is the symptom of a, of a root cause. And what's the root cause of brokenness? Sin. We have sin in our lives. We live in a world of sinners, and, and we are the, uh, the victims of other people's sins. But again, brokenness can, can be addressed. But if we're going to talk about brokenness, we also have to talk about the root cause of that, and that's, that's sin. Sin has also recently been redefined into categories of privilege and oppression. And so is sin personal, or is it cultural, and is it systemic? Got, got to land some there on that. Scripture says that, that each person is judged for their sin. Now, does that mean that as society we can have sin? Yeah, we can have sinful laws and sinful practices. But each individual person is responsible for their own sin. Final, final question to ask of any message, any teaching that's being proclaimed is would this message bring hope to all people 
at all times and across all cultures. And that really is a, a great uh, test for, for any message that, that you're hearing. Would this message bring hope to all people at all times and across all cultures? Or is this message really just offering salvation to a limited number of people in a particular place at a particular time? So does this, does this message give hope to the orphan and widow in India to the same extent that it gives hope to a stockbroker in New York City? And will it give hope to the sick and dying in the same way that it gives hope to the healthy and wealthy? Does it offer hope at a wedding in the same way that it offers hope at a funeral? The true gospel will do that. It's a story of, of Charles Wesley, uh, who regularly took the, the gospel to outcasts uh, in London society. And in July of 1738, he, he preached at the, the infamous Newgate prison in London. And there was a cruel uh, penitentiary where, where men, especially slaves, were condemned for the most minor offenses. And, and hangings were conducted as really entertainment for the townspeople. And, and Charles Wesley took a special interest in, uh, in an African slave who was condemned to hang for, for stealing from his master. And the hopeless man listened in astonishment as, as Charles Wesley came and shared the gospel with him and told him about Christ. Told him about Christ coming and dying and agonizing death for him. And, and, this, and the slave listened with eager astonishment. And he began to cry and, and tears were, were streaming down this man's face. And he cried out, what was, was it for me? Did God suffer all this for so poor a creature as me? And that man found salvation along with others who were there that day and heard Charles Wesley proclaiming the gospel. And the next week on the day of execution, Charles Wesley went back. And he, and he prayed and, and sang hymns with the men as they were loaded onto a cart and taken to the gallows. But Charles Wesley later wrote this in his journal about that day. He says that they were all cheerful, full of comfort, peace, and triumph, assuredly persuaded that Christ had died for them and waited to receive them in paradise. See, see, the true gospel will bring hope to the men who are facing the gallows. The true gospel will give hope to the thief on the cross. The true gospel will give hope to all people in all circumstances across all time. But there are many gospels being proclaimed today that do not give hope. Right? If... if Salvation and blessing comes by giving as much money as you can to, to certain preachers and, and ministries. What hope does that bring to the person in, in a hospital bed who's about to die? It doesn't give them much hope because they don't have much time. They don't have time to go and do the works that you're establishing for them. No. Again, that's not the true gospel. 
we have to know and believe the true gospel and see and realize that anything and everything else is a false gospel and that that message is dangerous to our soul and to the souls of others. You have to be convinced of this. Again, to repeat the Apostle Paul. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. must be convinced of that and then live discerningly and listen carefully and, and the messages that you're hearing in churches. I'm not exempt from this. Okay? You're still called to evaluate everything that I say. Say, Thomas, where are you getting that from? Is that really in alignment with the Scriptures? You evaluate everything that you hear in church, on the radio, on television, on YouTube, in books, and in person. And we understand that there are many false gospels out there that we have to be aware of. And we must stand firmly on the message of the true gospel. So, so if we're aware there's only one true gospel and that there are many false gospels, then, then the next question that we can address is what is the role of the true gospel in the life of the church? That's what I want to kind of wrap things up with so as we look at that, that topic, you can, can break it down into another three categories. That, that the, the message of the gospel is, is the central message for unbelievers. That as we, uh, as we gather together to, to worship our Lord here on Sunday mornings, then we scatter out into the world. And what is it, an ambassador, that we, that we encourage everyone to be doing? Who's on the outreach team? Now, everybody raise your hand. Uh, we, we are all a part of the outreach team. We are all called to go forth as ambassadors to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the true gospel to the world around us. And as we proclaim the true gospel, we have to make sure that the true gospel is our central message. There, there's no other sin. There's nothing else that unbelievers need to, to do to fix themselves up before they believe the gospel, okay? Let me give an example of what I mean. If you're, if you're talking and interacting with somebody uh, who, who may have a, a long history of, of sexual sin, uh, or maybe they struggle with, with homosexuality, the scripture doesn't call them to repent of their homosexuality. Like, wait a second. No, what is their most urgent need? to believe the gospel, to repent of their unbelief, to turn to Jesus in faith. That is their most pressing need, and that's the central message of the church to unbelievers. To repent of your unbelief, look to Christ in faith, and then begin to follow him, and we'll sort all of the other things out. But the greatest need of an unbeliever is to repent of unbelief, not any one particular sin. So the gospel is the central message for unbelievers, and the gospel is also the central message for believers. This is really what, what Bruce's class during equipping hour is about. 
That, that we never outgrow the gospel. We never move beyond it. But we continue to understand it to a greater and greater extent. I love Romans 1.15, the Apostle Paul uh, writing to the Roman church and understanding the Roman church was the most mature church uh, in the New Testament times. As you look at the, the, the letter to the Romans, there's no doctrinal errors that are needing to be corrected. There's no issues or anything uh, else. Paul is saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to lay out the gospel to you in, in a profound way. And in Romans 1.15, he says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And Paul's speaking to believers. And what is it that he can't wait to do? He can't wait to proclaim the gospel to them. So we never move beyond the gospel. We never leave its waters for another lake. What we do is we continue to, to swim in those waters and see how deep they go. We begin to see all of the implications, all of the, the treasures that are there in that lake for us to, to look at, to, uh, to see, and then to begin to incorporate into our lives. That's what Bruce talked about this morning. How, how the truth of the gospel should continue to impact our lives, even as Christians. Because are we still sinners? Absolutely. Do we still need, still need help changing and being transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus? Absolutely. So we don't move past the gospel. So the central message to the believer is still the gospel. And then third, just overall, the gospel is the central message of the church. This message of, of the forgiveness of sins through the repentance and, and faith. This, is, this was the, this, the central part of Jesus' ministry. Turn with me over to, to Mark chapter 1. This is profound when we, when we see it and realize it. Because when, when Jesus began his ministry, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, what did he, what did he do? It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, first and foremost, was a preacher. If you look a little bit later in that same chapter, and if you just look at the chapter headings, what heading do you see there above verse 29 in Mark chapter 1? Jesus heals many, right? Jesus is in a house and people keep coming to him wanting healings, and Jesus is healing and healing and healing, and then if you look at the next section, verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. <clears throat> and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Why is everyone looking for Jesus? What do they want from him? Healing. And look at what he says. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. 
Think about that. Was it good that Jesus was healing? Absolutely. But what's even better? That he's going and preaching, that he's going and proclaiming the gospel. And this is the central message of the church, and we must guard it. There's a, what, what's taking place right now in, in our current cultural landscape is really just a, a repetition of what has gone past. As our, our world and so many churches are, are focusing more and more on social issues, they're pulling themselves away from the central focus of the church. The message of the church is the gospel. And really what's taking place right now is just a, a repetition of what happened at the late 1800s and the early 1900s with something called the social gospel. Where, where churches and organizations began to, to think that the purpose of the gospel was to, to be the cure for social issues in society. During that period of time, it's kind of the Industrial Revolution. Cities are, are just exploding with growth and, and people who are coming and working in factories and all of these things. And that's bringing major societal issues. And then churches began to focus upon just fixing those issues. Feeding the poor, uh, addressing alcoholism, uh, racial tension, crime, uh, fatherlessness, all of these things. The church began to, to focus and make a priority, which all of those are good things. But at the beginning of the social gospel movement, the, the thinking went like this. Let's feed the poor so that we can proclaim the gospel to them. But, but over time, those priorities got inverted. And what ended up happening is let's stop preaching the gospel because it's keeping us from feeding the poor. Because when we, when we proclaim the gospel to that person that we're trying to feed, the gospel is a stumbling block. It's foolishness. And then we're trying to feed them, but then the gospel is a stumbling block to accomplishing that. So what should we jettison? The gospel. And, and that's what ended up taking place with so many churches and so many organizations. You guys have heard of the YMCA, right? Yeah? Why, why, why did that initially get created? Because young men needed to be discipled. Young men needed an, an outlet to, to be uh, trained and equipped in the, the Bible. And then it morphed from there. And a lot of those same things are, are happening now. But the central message of the church must be the gospel. The, the, the church cannot become or be transformed into a social change instrument. And we just can't do that. Because if we, if we do that, if we start to make something else, anything else a priority, as good as it may be, we will lose the gospel. H.B. Charles, uh, a black pastor in, in Jacksonville, Florida, says this. He says that the church cannot adequately address racial issues by trying to be something it is not. The church must be the church, and the church must keep the main thing the main thing. He says the church overcomes racial tensions by maintaining spiritual priorities. And that is what we have to, to see and understand. And 
This is worthy of a message in and of itself, but I'll say it really quickly. The world's best hope for racial reconciliation is the gospel. If you want to read more about that, go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, and you'll see what Christ did, that he is our peace, that he is the one who has united into a single people, Jew and Gentile. So the church must focus first and foremost and always upon the true message of the gospel. I love what what J.C. Ryle, the 19th century pastor, says this. To take away the gospel from a church, and that church is not worth preserving. It is a well without water, a scabbard without a sword, a steam engine without fire, a ship without a compass and rudder, a watch without a mainspring, a stuffed carcass without life. All these are useless things, but there is nothing so useless as a church without the gospel. So we have to understand the message of the church is the gospel. It is the central message of the church. There is one true gospel. There are many false gospels. But the gospel must be central in the life of the church. It is what we proclaim to unbelievers and is what we teach to believers and help all of us to apply all the richness of what it proclaims. That same pastor I mentioned, H.P. Charles, tells a story about his transition to that church in Jacksonville, Florida. He was coming from a, a church in the Los Angeles area and didn't know anyone in Jacksonville, didn't know uh, really much about the city or what he was getting himself into. And so he spoke with another uh, pastor regarding uh, pastoral transitions. And he asked his friend who'd gone through some pastoral transitions himself, he says, what should, I, what should I go and focus upon? And his friend told him this story about a group of bandits who came upon a town to rob the bank. And when the bandits got there, they, sound, they, they saw that the, all of the people of the town had, had set up a guard around the bank because they were aware that there were bandits in the area. And so the bandits look and say, hey, we're not going to be able to rob this bank. But, but they didn't give up. So what the bandits did is that they went out into the fields and they set all of the barns on fire. And all of the people in the town who were guarding the bank, guess what they did? They, they ran out to put the barns out. So they scattered and then the bandits went in and they robbed the bank. So his friend told him this story and then he said this, whatever you do, guard the bank. And that's what we have to do as a church. We have to guard the gospel. We have to keep the main thing as the main thing. Make sure it continues that way. And my prayer is that as individuals, we would cherish the gospel, that we would continue to see all that it holds for us and all that it offers to us. And then my prayer is that as a church that we would guard the gospel, that we would make sure that it always and forever stays the main thing of our ministry. Because again, remembering what we saw in Galatians, gospel drift does happen. Gospel distorters do exist, and gospel distortion demands condemnation. So may we be faithful. Amen?
Let's pray together.